Today's interview is a little bit different. I invited my friend and colleague, Dr. Mike Cove, on the podcast. He is the curator of mammalogy at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. And we were chatting, and he mentioned that he wanted to talk to me about forest elephants. And I ha- did my dissertation research on forest elephants. So rather than just him and me talk privately, we thought it would be fun to have this scientific chat on the podcast. To set some context, he's been thinking about disturbances, about more disturbed habitats that some small carnivores and rodents are attracted to, even tied to, and was just thinking about how those habitats were created thousands of years ago and how our landscape looked different. We had many different animals. We had the Pleistocene megafauna, like mastodons, these large giant ground slots, and we talked about how that shaped the earth and these mammal communities. He wanted to know how forest elephants affect the forest today and what influence that they have on the environment. And we toy with the concept of Pleistocene rewilding, which scientists have proposed bringing back species that resemble these extinct Pleistocene species to to redo these ecological, to restore these ecological processes. So bringing elephants over to the United States. So we'll talk about this concept in depth in the podcast. I hope you enjoy this crazy fun conversation. Before we get started, I just wanted to talk about a new program that I am running and I need some founding members to help me co-create this project. It is for kids around ages of 8 to 12 and their parents. And the goal of this program is to get outside, get connected to nature, and get them learning about wildlife and nature by using real wildlife biology activities that we do as scientists so that they can learn about science, the process of science. So often in school, you're just you're just memorizing facts or just learning about animals, like what's this part called and what this animal does. But in this program, kids are really going to be learning what science is, and this will help them become more informed and more critical thinkers as, as citizens when they grow up. A big component of this program is to also get kids outside so we can get them off of their devices and interacting in nature which provides so many mental health, physical health benefits. I know that parents out there are struggling with what to do with their kids since the pandemic. Well, this program has got you covered. We're going to come up with really fun activities for kids to do. If you can't always go outside, that's okay. We're going to have virtual activities as well, virtual alternatives. We are going to interact as a group. You're going to interact with me as a scientist. I am just so excited for this program. So if you're interested, just head over to fancyscientist.com and you should see a tab for Kids Wildlife Program. You can sign up there and get some more information. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Shuttler, a wildlife biologist who's learned throughout her career studying animals that science alone cannot save species. We need you. In the Fancy Scientist podcast, you'll learn about fun animals, conservation tips, and science advice, all while breaking stereotypes about what a scientist looks like. Let's get started. 
I don't even dress fancy all the time. I'm not you even look that pretty fancy. fancy. It's just a black shirt. Okay. <laughs> Hi, Mike. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. It's good to interact with a, a friend when we don't get all that much interaction these days. Yeah. So we used to talk science a lot when we worked to, with each other, but we haven't had a chance to. And Mike wanted to ask me some questions about forest elephants in terms of what he's been thinking about with some research that he's doing. But first, why don't you tell everyone, give them a background of yourself. So what, what you're doing right now and how you got there. Okay, cool. Yeah. So I'm the curator of mammalogy at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. And I have been in this role. Start. I started March 16th. So I have been in this role. I'm, I'm a full-on COVID mammologist. I have only worked at the museum in the age of, of our global pandemic. But the majority of what I do is I oversee the mammal collection that we have at the museum. And so one of the cool things that I don't think a lot of folks realize is that museums, in addition to having these educational outreach exhibits and, and you know, uh, a format for, for learning so much about the natural world are actually the repositories of most of the biodiversity data that we've historically collected. And so the mammalogy collection has over 20,000 specimens, vouchered specimens, which means that could be anything from, you know, tiny, tiny bat skulls all the way up to a, a full polar bear mount or whale whale skeletons. And so we have over 20,000 of those and they're hidden. They're actually two floors underground in, a, in kind of an underground warehouse. And you can just get lost in those collection shelves where you're just going up and down the aisles and opening the drawers and, and pulling out all of these different specimens. And all of them tell an interesting and unique story. And so we can use those data you know, all of the, all of the, I should have brought one. All of the animals have a little tag that say, you know, the species, wood rat, for example, and we could see where it was collected and when. And so then we could go contemporarily and say, okay, we saw wood rats here in right in, right here in Raleigh as, as recently as the eighties, but we haven't seen any, any since then. And so what might've caused them to be lost from this area? And so that's a lot of what we're able to do with these historical collections is think about mapping biodiversity historically, and then revisit, you know, contemporary biodiversity and think about how best we could use those historical data to inform current and future conservation efforts to restore habitats. And so that is why we're talking today, because <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about even prehistory and how animals have interacted, you know, tens of thousands of years ago and where we're at now in terms of habitat and, and conservation and moving forward with restoring habitat for some of these endangered and threatened species here in North Carolina, but also more broadly across the country and the world. So that's, that's where my research stands now. And I, I do a lot of work with rodents are, you know, there's not a lot of folks that are interested in rodents 
but rodents are, you know, the most rich group of mammals. They, they have the most species of mammals. Yeah. They're the most species rich, not financially rich. rich. Yeah. Not financially (laughs) rich. No, we're probably the poorest, you know, a lot of the, (laughs) a lot of the conservation funding goes towards, you know, kind of the charismatic megafauna, the tigers, the leopards, the polar bears, and the elephants. And, and a little less for things like wood rats, which I'm sure most folks haven't even heard of. And Stephanie, someday we can do a whole podcast on wood yeah. rats. Yes. No, we really should. Because what you have, there's lots of trajectories with wood rats that we could talk about. We'll definitely do that. We'll set a date. Mm-hmm. And then and Mike also has a lot of experience camera trapping as well. That's, that's, that's how we know each other. He was brought on the eMammal Project. And also cats too. He hates this when I mention this, but he does a lot of camera trap work for domestic cats that are either feral or owned and look at how they impact the community as well. Right, right. Yep. So that is another component of my research as I study the impacts of invasive species usually. And some, you know, one of, one of them is a cuddly killer, the house cat, right? Domestic cats. And so just thinking about, you know, we don't know how many cats there are out in the environment. And so just trying to use non-invasive techniques like the camera traps where we're not catching or harming the cats, but we're identifying them based on their patterns and estimating how many there are in order to figure out a solution moving forward, right? Because Mm -hmm. if you don't even know how many cats there are out in the environment, then it's really difficult to assess their impacts on bird communities or rodent communities, lizards, snakes and things, but also how best to manage them or how to evaluate how managing them, we either via neutering or adopting them out or sending them to these euthanasia, sending them to these, you know, cat sanctuaries. And so Mm -hmm. there's all, all the, you know, that we'll have another podcast. Yeah. I'll have you one. I'll have you for (laughs) wood rats and then a separate, honestly, cats would be a really great podcast episode. Okay. But today it is a controversial topic. Yeah. It is a controversial topic for sure. But today we're talking about forests. So when you started talking, you were talking about these small rodents and, and mesocarnivores, what, what were you explaining to me? Yeah. So I've, I've been thinking about this a lot and I study a lot of small, small animals and not just rodents. I've looked at, you know, I, little known fact, my master's research originally was focused on the eastern spotted skunk which is in the ozarks of missouri and i lived out of the the my car i lived out of my 1998 buick regal driving all over the ozarks for like eight months trapping for spotted skunks and i never caught a single spotted skunk never i caught plenty of striped skunks i caught plenty of raccoons and opossums And I ended up kind of, you know, what's a final report like that look like? It says, yes, the (laughs) spotted skunk warrants its endangered status here in Missouri because I could not find any 
and I had the data to show that I was at least successful at catching a lot of other things, but not spotted skunks, right? And so there's been a lot of research, you know, all surrounding this, this kind of enigmatic small skunk. And they're a little bit smaller than the striped skunks. They're actually closer to the size of a squirrel. And there's been a lot of research to show that they associate with thick thickets and, you know, hemlocks and what, what is it called? Rhododendrons and mountain laurels, all of these different plants that grow along, you know, mountain creeks and, and riparian corridors, like along creeks and streams, but also in these kind of you know, newly growing areas where there's lots of thick understories. So young forests with lots of cover. And it seems like what, what happens there is if you have a lot of understory, the, the skunks and other small carnivores, you know, maybe weasels and plenty of the rodents, right? The wood rats that I, that I feel so strongly about golden mice, lots of others, jumping mice. There's a whole bunch of different rodents that have also declined historically because they depend on these, what we would call, they're not, they're not exclusively tied to these habitats, but they associate with them because there's lots of cover for them to hide from predators. And so if you're a small, you know, mammal this big running around in the forest, if there's not a lot of vegetation for you to duck under, then you're easy prey for things like great horned owls or mm-hmm. hawks or you know coyotes that have that are kind of novel to to the east coast to the eastern U.S. and you know over the past couple mm-hmm. decades, other predators like bobcats, things like that, even raccoons, and so you know I think that and I'm guilty of this. I have always thought of these early successional habitats of as not having as much value as a forest as a you know a giant you know primary forest old growth forest with you know trees mm-hmm. this big around i've always assumed that those that that's the the pinnacle of what the plant community should look like right and, yeah. and we should strive to protect all the forests and it should all look like that. And, and coming to North Carolina, I realized that, you know, there's so much more than just forest. There's pine savannas, longleaf pine savannas, right, that were historically maintained through lightning strikes and, mm-hmm. and fires roaring through the understory. And so a lot of management now kind of tries to simulate these natural processes that were suppressed, like fire, prescribed fires and things like that. And it got me thinking, (laughs) you know, in, in North Carolina, historically, pre, pre prehistorically, right. I'm using the term historically too much, too, too loosely here. We had, uh, megafauna and mega herbivores, just like there are in the, in Africa and Asia today. Right. So we Mm -hmm. had, we didn't necessarily have elephants, but we had pretty close allies. We had the mastodons, which are somewhere between a a forest elephant and a savanna elephant, pretty large, 
a large elephant like morphologically animals, speaking uh, and morphologically yeah. speaking yeah <laughs> and and we would have had mammoths right in yeah. in some areas maybe not necessarily in North Carolina I would have to look at maps but we had these mega herbivores that were going around and when I think about those now I just I just picture them, you know, walking through forests like they're bulldozers, right? Mm-hmm. And so they would just knock over trees. And and what happens when you knock over a couple of trees or you eat out all the, you know, vegetation of, or, or pull all the branches off of a tree? Mm-hmm. All the light gets through to the ground and it allows a lot of other things to flourish. And, and I suspect that a lot of those things that would come up from the ground might be important food for rodents uh, mm-hmm. and other, you know, small, n- not just mammal. I, I, I'm highly biased towards mammals. So, so many of my examples are mammal centric, but, you know, these early successional okay. habitats are critically important for, you know, endangered butterflies and all different types of other, you know, herptofauna, reptiles and amphibians too, and some birds that associate with those newly regenerating habitats. So, but I, I think that so much, you know, so much of the soft fruits and things that rodents eat come from these, these vines and, and small shrubs and things that pop up very fast as soon mm-hmm. as a light gap opens up. And so what what it it really has me thinking is that, you know, mastodons matter. And we forget that mastodons were here, you know, concurrently with with early humans in 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 North America. They overlapped and and presumably humans played a role in their extinction. And so it just really has me thinking about, what their absence on a landscape has has you know played a role in the distribution of so many of these other animals and what habitats even look like now versus what they might have looked like historic prehistorically because while these animal while some of these animals are rare or threatened contemporarily they're still, they, they can persist in, you know, old growth forests and things like that, but maybe they're not thriving as well as they should be, or maybe they're really limited to areas like, like stream beds where there's still a lot of like light that gets through and some thick vegetation around stream beds, as opposed to where, or rocky outcrops, for example. And there's cover there f- for them to avoid predators, but maybe those environments would have been much more common, or would still be quite common if the elk were still around. Oh, you know, still fairly common. They're introduced in the Smokies, and so even just studying what role elk play in changing plant communities in the Smokies would be pretty fascinating. But what would an elephant-like animal? <laughs> be doing to the to these environments you know and so i don't know i that that's what i that's why i wanted to have this conversation with you because 
you have so much expertise in elephants and, and forest elephants specifically, but you know a lot. Can you hear my daughter in the background? Yeah, that's okay. Oh, we're very, we're very low key on this fun. podcast. She's, she's enthusiastic when <laughs> she can hear my enthusiasm. She's feeding off of it. I'm excited. Daddy's talking about mastodons. So yeah, I really want to know. I really want to have a conversation because I don't know what the answer is. Mm. You know, are we, are we going to start, you know, renting elephants <laughs> from the North Carolina zoo and, you know, releasing them in little pens in the Smokies to see how much they change the forest. Something tells I, me we're probably not going to be doing that. Anytime yeah, soon. I actually remember I first, so this is actually a real concept that that scientists had, I don't know, I guess over a decade ago now, because I remember I was in Kenya when somebody was talking about this idea and it's, it's called rewilding and it's exactly that, like bringing back these large herbivores to North American landscapes where a lot of them are now um, extinct or they're greatly declined to try to regenerate the, the different types of ecosystems that we've had back then. So, so yeah, the answer to your, your question, elephants would have a huge impact. So, so savanna elephants, 100% because they, so all elephants are ecosystem engineers or keystone species, but savanna elephants, when you actually have them in too high densities, they can for sure turn a forested habitat, like a more arid, dry scrub forest into a savanna habitat. And sometimes so much so that it is, you know, completely arid and, and really susceptible to drought which has led to culling programs, which is a nicer way of saying killing elephants. And those are extremely controversial because elephants are really intelligent. And there's a lot of evidence to show that, that elephants that have been through these programs actually remember them. Like they have, they seem to experience trauma. So, so, and, and it's just, it's just kind of icky to think about killing elephants. A lot of people just don't like it, even if they're okay with hunting of other animals. Right. Absolutely. But forest elephants, yeah. So forest elephants affect the forest a little bit differently. So savanna elephants, they'll like push over trees to eat leaves and they eat a lot of bark and branches and things like that. And forest elephants will too, but they really love fruit. That's that's the big thing. So they eat where I where I studied them, they ate about over 200 species of fruit and they disperse the seeds of these, of the fruit. That's, that's, what's really important or the so important how big role are those of forest seeds? elephants. Right. Oh, they can be how really small. Seeds? They don't have to be big. Oh, they can. Yeah. Oh. They, they eat fruits of all different sizes. So some of them are like, you know, giant, like grape, grapefruit size things. That's probably the biggest. I don't think I'm now I'm not an expert on their diet. So I actually, I actually don't mm-hmm. know for sure, but I think that's the biggest and then they eat, like we would have these little like bushes that they're called guavas and they're just mm-hmm. like about like the size of a grape and you can eat them too. They're really delicious actually. And they'll just like pluck them off with their, with their trunk tips. And, and oh, so them. they're, they're very <laughs> delicate compared yes. to the Savannah elephants. Yes. Interesting. And they do, I mean, they do affect the, the, the ground too, and the, and the forest composition, because like you said, they do charge through the forest and break branches and stuff. I do think it's a little bit more delicate than you think it is. I do think they, they tend to take the path of least resistance. So they're not necessarily like 
I'm going to go through the forest <laughs> and like just charge through there. You will find elephant paths throughout the forest and they do like these fruiting trees too. So there's actually been studies to show that they have stronger and more well-traversed paths and larger paths leading up to these major fruiting trees. So those create kind of like permanent light gaps in the forest, those, those paths do. And then- So do those paths, so do those paths end up being, you know, presumably fairly wide because the elephants occur live in large groups right how, how large are their groups they're not that large so the forest oh, elephant really? groups yeah they're really only the most common group is honestly an adult and her calves so oh, really so they're usually seen and yeah this is what my dissertation <laughs> research was on but yeah like the biggest group size i think i saw was like I think it was like maybe like 17 elephants in one place. And that was huge. Oh, but that's right. Yeah, that was huge. Usually the biggest group size would be closer to like seven. And that would include babies. Mm -hmm. So the forest elephants, they're not, they're not in these big groups. And really the only places where they get in these big groups is what we, what are called buys. And these are, they're natural clearings in the forest, but I suspect they were made by by animals, especially forest elephants. And they're they're really rich in minerals. And the elephants will dig up the soils and drink the water and eat the soils and stuff. And doing that maintains the the clearing. So there's no vegetation growing in it. And some of these buys can be huge. So the, the most famous is Zonga Bai. And at Zonga Bai, I th- when, there, when there wasn't a poaching issue, there were at least 40 elephants in the buy at a, every day at a time. Oh, wow. Hmm. But so, how big is that? Do you know, like, roughly how large that is? I don't I've know. I've seen some videos of, of these, they're yeah. pretty fascinating. Yeah. Ingwe wow. Bai, which is another big buy that I visited in, in Gabon. There were, the day I visited, probably a total of 10 elephants there. So Mm -hmm. not necessarily lots of animals all at the same time. Gotcha. So I don't think they're, I don't think forest elephants are turning over like the soil as much and destroying trees as much. And I I think I read somewhere that they don't, they don't push trees over unless they're less than like a couple of inches in, in diameter. So they're not like they're not uprooting trees to, to get fruits. So it's more about like the seed dispersal and the light gaps from their trails, but, go, but going up to those buys, the trails are big. The, the forest elephant trails that we used, honestly, they're not that big. It's kind of like if you're hiking, you know, like a state park here, the trails really? are, yeah, they're not that big. They're it's, I mean, they're, they're obviously big because they're elephants, but they're right. smaller than you think. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah, I guess like, I don't know, the vegetation like bounces back. So it's like. Right. They're, well, they're well very... so, but that's the question, right? So yeah. the vegetation is pretty thick along those edges. It's like yeah. a trodden path. And then along the edges, there's enough light getting through that there's probably some thick, lush vegetation to the sides of it presumably, right? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's both. There's some though with, with, you know, more of a clear forest floor and Mm -hmm. in Lope where I worked, they actually do do prescribed burns because they have savanna habitats from humans, I guess, thousands of years ago, and they want to maintain those savannas. 
because some animals like the, like the forest Buffalo, they'll die without those savannas. So they maintain that. Right. 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 Interesting. So let me think this through. So would the, would the vegetation along these elephant trails be thicker, denser, better quality than if you picked a random plot in the forest or would you not really be able to tell? I'm sure you'd be able to tell, but I don't know <laughs> the answer to that. And I guess it depends yeah. on what, like, like for what, you know, like for, it would depend on for what species. I do know that elephants are attracted to edges in general. So like creating roads in forests is a huge deal because it increases access to poaching. But I do know that the elephants are actually attracted to the roads because it, it, it attracts that successional, um, successional vegetation that, that you're talking about. So those, those new plants moving in, they like, they like that new growth. And some of those new plants are, are especially, you know, vines and lianas and things like that, that fruit a lot and, and probably have tasty, tasty fruits on them, presumably. Yeah. So it makes you wonder if those are attractive to, in Africa, if those are attractive to primates, monkeys, and things like that, if, if you feel like they follow elephants or they're associated with elephants, do you feel like there's anything like that? I don't think so. Or at least where I was, I don't think so. I think, yeah, I never heard anyone. They probably have enough resources. Like they probably have enough resources up in the trees. Presumably. Yeah. Really high up that but they don't you have to compete with yeah. the lower animals. <laughs> right. But you have to imagine that there are, that there are some small, you know, the first mammals were this big, right? They yeah. were little shrew like animals that we, that we all evolved from. And there still are tons of those little shrew like and, and rodent rodent animals. And so I, I, I have to think that they, they must use those habitats more than yeah. open understory. And so what's interesting is I, I've, I did a little research in preparation for our conversation here. <laughs> I've been reading some, a few quaternary journals about some paleontological research looking at microware in the teeth of mastodons from Florida Mm -hmm. and a few other spots in the East coast. And they can even go in there and pull out little cells and diatoms and things like that and identify the, they can use the isotopes, Mm -hmm. which are, you know, carbon and nitrogen from whatever plant that was. And some of these little twigs and things just are preserved as twigs and stuck lodged in. And so yeah. And so what I was reading is that they they forage or they browse a lot, right? Browsing, they use their trunk to pull stuff in. So that would defoliate lots of trees and things, but that mm-hmm. they were also eating a lot of grasses, mm-hmm. which leads me to believe that there would have had to be these open areas where yeah. these grasses were prominent and presumably they played some role in, in creating those habitats. Mm-hmm. And so I, I keep thinking, I, I've been thinking about this more and more, like s- some of these animals that modify their environment 
we always classify them based on the habitat that they choose. But maybe it's 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 the chicken or the egg maybe they're creating their own habitat and their persistence over time is what is curating that habitat to be the ideal habitat it's interesting for if you said about savannas for forest elephants i don't think they maintain the savannas in low pay because like i said they do the prescribed burns i maybe there's not high enough density of them but I mean, the savannas, they would get so high, like, like sometimes you couldn't even see the elephants. The grasses were, were so tall. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, so, and, and I do remember the director talking about that. Yeah. Basically that if they didn't burn them, then, you know, like, like trees would start moving in right, and it right, would, right. the forest would take over, but maybe mastodons are different. Asian elephants are different. Right. Elephants, elephants eat more fruits too. They're, they eat the right, most right. fruits and they do eat grass, but usually when I saw them eating grass, it was after a prescribed burn when the grass was really new. Oh, and it's freshest mm-hmm. and, and most nutrient dense. Yeah. So I there's probably a big difference there because the forest elephants are just that. They occur in this, you know, vast tropical is I guess that's the is that the Congo? Yeah, Congo Basin. Yeah. And so that's, you know, this vast rainforest. And so you have these, you know, the vast majority of the habitat is forest and not not much of the successional stuff. And so you would expect the same thing in the Amazon or or the Southeast Asian rainforests and stuff. But I I suspect that the temperate zones of, of North America would be a little more heterogeneous where you have you know forests mm-hmm. savannas the pine pine ecosystems and then these you know open open areas especially think about in north carolina we have the the mountains the piedmont and the coastal plain and so i think that a lot of i mean obviously the soils driven by glaciation affect what plants and communities, plant communities and ecosystems thrive in those three different zones. But at some level, there must have been another top-down effect where the these elephant, ele, elephantids, is that is that the right word? Good question. Uh, I never had to say it like that. I always said that, elephants, but, I guess. Yeah, elephant, elephant species, I would have said. Elephant allies. <laughs> I'll call them elephant allies. Or probos. Probosidians. Yeah, <laughs> probosidians, of course. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so you would have had these probosidians playing some role in shaping those environments. Um, so I have a so, question for you. Or go ahead, yeah. go ahead. No, no, it's just a fascinating question because yeah. it's true. We don't really know. And I wanted to hear your thoughts on elephants in general. It, I did also look, and mastodons do fall... Uh, on the size scale are larger than uh, forest elephants. They actually mm-hmm. are closer to savanna elephants. So I suspect they might be a little more destructive and might yeah. uh, be a little more, a little closer to the savanna elephants on that spectrum of what their, what their <laughs> like damage control would be when you have those, those raging around in the forest. But do you but think though that we've, been without elephants for so long in North America, like at least 10,000 years, 
do you think that if we were to add them back in, that it would change the ecosystem too much? Like, like we've kind of reached a new equilibrium with, with large herbivores like bison and stuff. And now those have largely gone extinct for most areas. So mm. I guess what I'm trying to say is, are we, if would rewilding be bringing us back to something that has already changed? That that's the ultimate question really. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not here suggesting we try to bring back dire wolves because there's, there wouldn't be, I, I, I mean, there might be plenty of prey for them and all the white-tailed deer we have here, but there's not really the space for them. And, and humans, you know, obviously play a huge role in where animals can and can't live and mm -hmm. thinking about the interactions and potential for conflict. And so, you know, we, we could learn a lot from Africa and Asia where they, where people are, are constantly living at this interface of where, you know, raccoons get in our garage, in our garage or garbage or whatever. And it's like, oh, what a pain, but elephants raiding your crops. You can only yeah. imagine how much different that is. And can so destroy your livelihood. Right. And, and, and really be detrimental. And so I sympathize so much with, with these, with, with these issues of human wildlife conflict, where it, it can be really difficult to figure out how to manage animals like that. And so it's true. I, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't expect that we're going to be releasing <laughs> elephants into this smoky mountains anytime soon, but it does make you think that, that there was a role for them and that ecosystem function that they fulfilled is largely absent because white-tailed yeah. deer White-tailed deer are not knocking trees over. They might be over-browsing some areas, mm -hmm. um, but they're probably having uh, much different effects on the plant communities than something like a mega herbivore. And so I think that there are probably opportunities to study what those effects would be looking, you know, from, from paleontology paleontological records of what these animals would have been eating and where they would have been occurring. But maybe it's time to start doing these large scale manipulations or at least do some experiments to test what, what those effects might've been, how they would have affected the habitat. And mm -hmm. if it's worth doing to, to, you know, restore some of the, some of the early successional, the disturbed habitats that start to regrow thick thickets and, and, and early forests. And, you know, maybe all of a sudden we're, we will see more golden mice in areas where <laughs> they, where they would have been common in these thick under, under, I, I don't know, you know, I, I don't know a lot about plants. I'm not really a plant person. So probably there's a true definition for what a thicket is that I'm, and I'm using it incorrectly. That's it. We're very, golden like mice I said, use... low key on this. Can you tell <laughs> well, us what golden mice, what golden mice the... are and why, why you care about them so much? Well, golden mice are, are, you know, uh, this beautiful little rodent that are native throughout a lot of the Southeastern U.S., but they're, they're absent from well, it's unclear. You know, a lot of these things are unclear because we don't 
survey small mammals as much as we could. And, and so when you, I, when you study their declines, like a lot of people don't know why, is that what you would say is accurate? That like you can measure, you, you can estimate populations and look at trends, but but for some of these bigger species like elephants, there's obviously poaching or habitat loss, but, but these right. smaller species, if the habitat's there, you're not finding them. Is that what you're trying to say? And they're still in decline? Right, right, right. Yeah. And so, and it, it's hard to say because it's, you know, it's not hard to get data on these species, but it is sometimes hard to get, you know, the, the support, the logistical support or the buy-in to, mm -hmm. to make strong, robust assessments of the populations and, and look at them long-term especially rodents, right? It's, yeah. you don't see, you don't see very many rodent specific grants out there. Not. All right. But, but, you know, I think there, you know, I, I was thinking about this. There's an elephant sanctuary over in Tennessee. Oh you, yeah. You, you should totally like, study there. Yeah. You know, there's this giant elephant sanctuary and I they have these free that. roaming elephants and it's like, Man, it would be interesting to go check that place out and see what those elephants on the landscape have done to those habitats and see, you know, what it might have looked like before and what it looks like now. But but just making, you know, I, I think with all research, we need to go beyond these just correlations of where species occur and yeah. get at some kind of you know, research experiments where we're manipulating the environment a little more and see if we can restore habitat. And so a lot of it falls within, you know, monitoring long-term restoration projects. And maybe that's the answer. Maybe that's something cool mm -hmm. that we could look into. Again, you know, some of the rewilding research is interesting. I do agree that there are a lot of Pleistocene functions that were lost. But I also worry about accepting hippopotamuses in the Colombian river basins, you know, just accepting them because they're, they might play some role in, in, in replacing lost mega herbivore functions in Colombia. Those are, those are Pablo Escobar's hippos, right? That yeah. Were, that yeah. escaped and now there's yeah, for, you know, no, hundreds of them. For people hundreds who don't know. Them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there yeah. definitely are some exclusion studies for elephants with savannah elephants. And I know John Polson at Duke is doing oh, some yeah. with forest elephants. Because actually it's really hard to exclude forest elephants just because it's, it's hard to work in the forest. Like it's hard. I can't imagine it would be hard to construct. But he was telling me about these like these like bands that he wraps around trees that they they don't mm -hmm. destroy and knock down but yeah the tennessee elephant sanctuary oh, so for those for those of you who don't know it's so you have to be really careful with the word sanctuary there's a lot of like fake sanctuaries out there but this one they accept retired zoo elephants and and circus elephants and it is gigantic and it's like this yes. completely wild area and elephants like you said are just roaming around and it looks like they're they're in their natural habitat like if i were to show you a picture you'd be like oh that's an elephant in africa <laughs> right yeah yeah so Except you guys it's are... maples it's maples <laughs> right, and oaks right. in the background <laughs> if you didn't know the trees <laughs> um but one thing yeah. i wanted to say is you you talked about how 
like we kind of overlook these, these, these succession, I can't say succession, successional habitats, these early, like these recovering habitats and Mm -hmm. we shouldn't. And I think like a lot of times as scientists and even just as people in general, like we're, we, like you said, we want to like donate to the old growth forests, the ones that have never been disturbed, but these habitats can be really amazing for species. And like, when I went to Borneo, I went to a logged forest and it had all the same species there and it was selectively logged. And then I just did a, I have to plug my pepper pot study. <laughs> I just did a mm. study that came out with pepper pot. So this is a, a very small, very small, only eight kilometers, eight square kilometers, and it's close to the capital of Suriname. So it's not, it's not like a hundred percent an urban park, but it's adjacent to a big city. And we compared it to a large preserve in central Suriname, which is more the old growth or it is the old growth. And I mean, we definitely found differences, but we found way more species than, than we expected to find, including apex predators like puma and jaguars and giant ant, ant, ant giant ears aren't apex predators, but sorry, I'm just thinking about the animals. Well, they affect you're an ant. And they're, they're, and uh, so large herbivores, or we, we didn't get many large herbivores. We just got tapir. But you did get, yeah, one of, of my times. other passions yeah. is yeah our tapers right yeah so and we did get did, some yeah, deer but not i think only a couple of times no peccary though no pigs but but yeah we were we were really surprised by that and i i really liked like i used to think about this undisturbed habitat and parks being separate than people but i actually really like the kind of work that we do because most animals are, don't live in parks most animals are are, are in our habitats are, you know, right. where we next to our workplaces and in our backyards and these, these green patches in between homes and things. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think what it all comes down to is when you, when you asked me about the baselines, we obviously have surpassed the baseline of the Pleistocene and it's probably silly to, to, to set that as our target for a restoration goal, right? Yeah. But we are part of the system and it should be our goal and priority to play some role in, you know, undoing some of the historical damage that we've done and think about how we could restore habitats, you know, and and reclaim habitats to become natural environments again and all of a sudden you know we can we can work towards reforestation and and carbon sequestration for climate change but you know remind ourselves that these other habitats do have value and i think that you know in in, oh i work in the keys right in the florida Mm -hmm. keys and the florida keys if you've never been there they're a wacky place, but in North, in North Key Largo, there's a, there's a, you know, a sizable forest. It's about 1500, no, 1200 hectares. And it's a sizable forest. And when you walk around in that forest, it looks like this post-apocalyptic world because you'll be walking through, you know, pretty thick vegetation and find a house, you know, an an old house or foundation or telephone poles and things like that. And it just reminds you about if, you know, looking at 
the pyramid, Mayan pyramids and how mm -hmm. they've, they've overgrown and reverted to these natural states. You know, we're just one little component in the natural I know. world. And, and I, I, I mean, I, I have to remind myself that sometimes, but you know, nature finds a way we could prod it in the right direction would be nice and, and a good uh, goal to for us as conservation biologists to, to, to help move, move it all in the right direction. To quote Jurassic Park. What? So one, one oh, final, <laughs> one final question. So ideally, if you could restore Eastern forest by adding animals back, what, mm. what would you do? And there, and like, say there wasn't human conflicts or, or people were willing to accept these animals. What, what types of animals would you want to see back here? I think, you know, it would be nice to start, to start small with animals that are are still extant right that that animals that are not extinct mm -hmm. so you know seeing seeing wolves and mountain lions that would have historically occurred throughout the east eastern us they could that, that would certainly help you know in, in in the long term you know it would take time but that would certainly help with managing things like like over overabundant white-tailed deer populations. I mean, we have hunting and things to, to manage deer populations, but it would be nice to restore some of those top-down processes. But uh, you know, the the restoration of the reintroduction of elk to the Smokies mm -hmm. has been largely successful, and I think a, a pretty cool step in the right direction. I think that there are probably other other animals that historically occurred in the southeastern U.S. that could be, you know, reintroduced. But so much of what we're learning now is that, you know, a lot of carnivores are naturally recolonizing habitats because mm -hmm. they're, you know, making up for lost time where they were hunted into extirpation. And when you look at, you know, what it, it's cool. It's it's kind of exciting and encouraging. And I think we have a lot to learn about coexisting with large carnivores and mega herbivores and things like that. But it's I, you know, I, I largely feel optimistic mm -hmm. with a lot of the research coming out with, you know, mitigating the human wildlife conflict and and thinking about pepper pot, how, how restored habitats can <laughs> be recolonized and, yeah. and host, host, you know, these uh, charismatic megafauna. And, you know, I think, I think we're moving in the right direction as a global community and, you know, realizing that some things that we've done have not been great and let's try to fix them now. <laughs> yeah. And Colorado, they recently, voted to have wolves back to reintroduce mm. them by the slimmest mm -hmm. of margins, but they, they did. Yeah. That. It's interesting, right? Yeah. That's, and if, that's and learn, quite interesting. <laughs> if you want to learn more about mountain lions, I have a podcast episode about that and people think they're in the Eastern United States and they are not the camera trap evidence says otherwise, but I still get comments yeah. almost on a daily basis on my YouTube channel and mm -hmm. sent to me. You can still send them to yeah. me, but <laughs> but yeah. anyways, there's an episode where I explain that. Well, thank you so much. I'm definitely going to yeah, have you back you. on to talk about wood rats. We got to do wood rats and cats, two separate episodes, because cats actually, okay. 
like you said, it's a very controversial topic and I'm willing to take it on because I'm a cat lover and I'm a wildlife yeah. lover. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, cool. thank you so yeah, much. No, I would be happy to. Yeah. Thank you. This was fun. It's, it's nice to chat and get these science conversations going again. And, and yeah. I, I, I enjoy, I appreciate your insights on the elephant stuff and I appreciate your rolling with my out there idea. <laughs> Anytime. Let me... Well, thanks again. Mike is such a joy to talk to. I really do have to have him back on the podcast. He works on so many different cool species and projects. You can find him at covewildlife.com. You can see some of his cool camera trap photos, some of his photos from doing field work. You can also find him on Twitter at Mike underscore Cove. And he's on Instagram too, Mike Cove one. And he also has a YouTube channel. And if you are an aspiring wildlife biologist, he has a great video series on occupancy modeling. So that's a really great resource for you. I think it's four videos and it teaches you the basics. So that's a really great resource. You can go to covewildlife.com and you can get all of these social links. I really look forward to having him back on to talk about wood rats and cats using uh, camera traps to count numbers and just just feral cats in general we'll have to have a chat about that thanks mike again if you liked this episode care about wildlife care about conservation or know somebody who is interested in going into wildlife biology careers, please share this episode. You can also rate and review my podcast that really helps people find it. My goal is to spread messages of conservation and kindness for wildlife and to help people navigate wildlife biology careers. Rating and reviewing my podcast really helps other people find it. If you have questions or show ideas, you can find me at fancyscientist.com. My social media handles are at fancyscientist. On Instagram, there's an underscore between fancy and scientist. You can also send an email to hello at fancyscientist.com. If you're an aspiring wildlife biologist, ecologist, or zoologist, you can join me every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Facebook Live, where I answer different career questions. You can also ask me questions on the spot. I'm here for you. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate every single one of you. I am so grateful for you. I hope you have an amazing day. Be kind to animals and be kind to each other.